Welcome to Oilfield Talk. My name is Trey Falk, and I'm host of Oilfield Talk podcast. We want to speak with workers from all other aspects of the oil and gas industry and allow them the outlet to tell some crazy, amazing stories you just wouldn't believe are true. Not just the wildcats, the drillers, the roughnecks, the roustabouts, but the land-based offshore drilling operations, service companies, vendors, third-party personnel, production, transportation, all aspects of the industry that provide expertise throughout the oil field industry. But each of these have many, many hilarious stories to share about their time in the oil patch. I have no doubt that we will be able to share entertaining stories or tell tall tales that anyone who works in the industry will appreciate and get a hearty laugh while listening. But this is also going to be a family podcast. We'll be able to invite our families at home to listen. Although they won't believe half the stories we share, they may have a couple of dozen questions. Maybe it will give them and everyone a greater appreciation of the jobs we have in the oil field and why we enjoy our oil field family for half a year. So please take an hour or so out of your day. Give a listen to the Oil Field Talk podcast. Hope you enjoy the stories as much as I enjoy bringing them to you. All right. Welcome to Oil Field Talk. I'm still in Katy, Texas. It's a beautiful morning. What is it? Today's Tuesday, the 24th of October, nice breeze outside, and I'm sitting in the driveway of a buddy of mine named Brian Carrico. Is that pronounced correctly? Yes, sir. All right. Brian uh, was my safety supervisor for many years, and a very nice, good one. So I needed to hear some of his stories. Hey, Brian, good morning. Hey, Trey. It's good to see you again. It's good to catch up. Yeah, good catch up last night. I appreciated that. It's been a little while. It has. Uh, It's always good to see a familiar face. (laughs) Well, I appreciate it. That's good to be here. Well, how how many years did you spend in the oil field? I spent um, just over 10 years. Okay. Yeah, just over 10 years in the oil field. And uh, spent some other time before that in really in uh, the refineries. Okay. And working safety there. I uh, kind of had a, I guess, a various background before I came came here to Texas and got into the uh, offshore oil and gas. So and, where are you from? Uh, I'm originally from southern Ohio. Worked there, born and raised there in southern Ohio. Started actually in safety, I guess, over 20, about 25 years ago. I had had my degree in business management and wanted to do something more, went back and got my master's in safety. Right after that, started working in industry, worked in the steel industry and did a lot of uh, turnaround okay. safety, Yeah, doing the uh, 12 hour shifts, seven days a week, a lot of uh, heavy turnaround construction. And then uh, took a full-time job with an industrial contractor there. So doing all the- As their safety person? As their safety person, doing all the vac trucks. Oh, okay. Vac truck, water water cleaning, high pressure water cleaning. So that took us into the refineries. That's totally different than offshore oil and gas. Quite a bit different. (laughs) What brought you to Houston? Well, you know, it's a long story, but I met- uh, A beautiful girl? No, no. Ah, okay. Well, I did that a long time ago. <laughs> she already had me and still has me. So, and I'm lucky to have her. But um, 
I got uh, I got I met an acquaintance in Chicago. Actually, I was there taking my certification class for my certified safety professional. So I was there at the board of certified safety professionals preparing for my certification. And I met, uh, I met a friend there and, uh, he, he introduced me to oil and gas. We became friends. And at the time I was the uh, safety director at Marshall university. And I was also teaching there as well in the safety department. So, we, we met with each other and he actually uh, was actually calling on me for some of the graduates that were coming out of the program. Wanted your people, wanted yeah. your students. Yeah, to, to come to work for him. So, you know, we, we fostered that friendship and became good friends and uh, had a long distance friendship there for a while. And then, you know, one day he just, uh, he kept asking me, so when are you going to come to, come on down, when that, are you coming to Houston? That's right. And, uh, you know, it's, I was wanting to get into a warmer climate. He's, he kept sending me pictures of palm trees, and he'd send me pictures of the temperature whenever it was. We're definitely warmer. I remember one day there was snow all over the place <laughs> up there, and he just out of the blue sends me a picture of uh, from his office window of how warm it was, and then he sent me a question mark. That's right. So after that. And you uh, sent him a check mark. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I'm coming. So anyways, I came down interviewed with him and, and we just developed friendship and wonderful it uh i was able to get into the uh, offshore oil and gas you know which was new from what i'd been in that totally you know, different. safety is uh that's the thing safety is safety but uh all kinds of different environments you can be right. in and it requires a little different adjustment but i mean safety safety right yeah it um I'd say the oil and gas industry was good to me. It gave my family an opportunity to be in this Houston area. Beautiful house. You know, I think uh, overall it gave them uh, the opportunity to experience diversity and culture. And From um, Chicago, Ohio to South? Right, okay. right. It, uh, we, were, we were in a small town in Ohio, you know, not very many people and not very diverse so, not in a small town anymore but, uh, now that they came here the kids have really benefited you know now that they've your daughter's doing the volleyball and yeah we got my youngest daughter at home and she's uh you know in high school as a junior playing volleyball and doing well academically too in the top of her class got another daughter up at a&m and then i've got Another daughter that's married and getting ready to have make me a grandfather. That's here right. The, you said maybe yesterday. Minute. So yeah. we might get a phone call. We might have to cut this short. It, we may. She, <laughs> I hope uh, not. She is uh, due any minute. We're so excited for that. Absolutely. We're traveling to South Carolina next week to meet our new grandbaby. Oh, wow. Then I've got a son that's in the Navy. So, and he's serving. Uh, he joined the Navy to see the world, and he's been stationed in San Antonio. The whole so. time. He hasn't even got on a ship yet. No, he has not. But he's loving it, loving what he's doing. And, uh, if he stays in, they'll move him around. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been uh, the oil and gas has really been good to me and and uh, given me opportunity to Now, you uh, stopped at a master's a minute ago, but you're the only doctor of safety that I know. <laughs> yeah, I do have a doctor. That's right. And... Uh, and it's actually an educational leadership. Okay. So, but yeah, I did go on. I, I just didn't know when to stop. Sometimes I just don't know uh, <laughs> when to say when, you know. But uh, 
I do, do still have that degree. And uh, So do you want to plug your current business? I do. I do. I've been, uh, I've been out of the oil and gas industry now for about two years. We miss you. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I miss it. But uh, I've been doing well and I have my own business. That's um, perfect. I have a commercial, residential, and automotive window tinting business. I've uh, been very successful over the last two years. It's given me an opportunity to work uh, closer with my family. And, uh, That's right. You can set your own schedule, allows you to the flexibility, and you're still able to provide. It's been good. It's been good. And I still have to practice safety there as well. Oh, yes. And uh, you have any employees? I do. Okay. I do. And uh, I'm sure they're safe as well. They are. So, you know, a lot of working in heights issues we have to deal with. And I didn't different think things about that. There. You're right. So, yeah. And we've always got a razor in your hand. So, but it's been good. Hopefully, I'll get you to do my truck. Oh, yeah. I need, to get, I need to get some of that special UV protective stuff that keeps the heat out. Sure. <laughs> so tell me, uh, anything fun, crazy, wild stories from the oil field, either directly or somebody had to have called you and said, you're not going to believe this. Yeah, it's um, just trying to think back over time and things that have happened. You know, I've, uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to work uh, in a lot of different cultures around the world, as you have. Yes. And, you know, that's where we have spent a lot of time together. And you know, as I'm sitting here looking at your table and seeing all the currency from all the different <laughs> places that we've worked. All over the world. Uh, that's actually Russia right here. And oh, yeah. Brazil. Singapore yeah. and uh, Malaysia. Yeah. And uh, different places that we've been. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, I remember one time that we had uh, – made a trip to one of the rigs and and this was in a place in Romania where we were working and, and one of the colleagues I was, we were talking about the other day I was with him right. actually and we were actually uh, traveling out to the rig together I remember you know just some of the heliports that we worked out of and different things and crazy I never made it over there but um, a hut and a, and a, and a piece of concrete. Well, this wasn't even a piece of concrete. It's okay. a piece of grass out in the back. <laughs> That's and right. I remember. Uh, I've worked in Russia, and so it's very similar, I'm sure. I remember my colleague telling me, he said, you know, he said, this is going to be a little bit different than the heliports you're accustomed to. And uh, <laughs> when I got there, it uh, was very small. And, you know, we did the orientation, and uh, uh, it was just one big room that we were right. in. And then when we walked outside, we were just in a grass field and walking out. There were two helicopters back there. And one they were working on with the <laughs> mechanics and the other one you were supposed to get in and fly. Exactly. Yeah, and some <laughs> other things that were sitting around there that they've been working on. And it makes you think, uh, oh, there's a parts chopper. <laughs> there's the chopper that's being repaired. And there's a chopper that's actually supposed to work. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I've got but some scary was, stories myself. But it was good. We, uh, you know, we had a good time there. And, and I remember on the way back, we had made the rig visit. We were actually out doing some audits and came back in and. We were traveling back in. We had to go from uh, Stanza all back to Bucharest. And, you know, a little bit of a drive. Right. Got to see the beautiful countryside. It is beautiful country. And uh, coming through there, and I remember uh, seeing this one spot where um, we got back into town. And as we were coming across the city, that uh, we actually were in an accident. We got rear-ended. The taxi cab uh -oh. we were in got rear-ended. <laughs> It, nobody was hurt. Was did just, you stay there or did they tell you to leave? They told us to leave. Exactly. Yeah. A lot uh, of times they say, you know, if a, a passenger, they're like, 
you just leave. Go so, on about your business. So it was an argument at that point. Exactly. It was the one driver arguing with the other driver, and after they hashed it out, you know, we got in another car and went right. on. But it, everybody was fine. We laughed about it later. <laughs> Made it kind of interesting. So I remember that trip pretty well. You know, it was always uh, it was always interesting traveling internationally when you're trying to get to multiple rigs on a tight schedule. Trying and, to make uh, all those flights, trying to make all those connections. You still got to sleep, but there's still travel time. Oh, yeah. And it's exhausting. Yeah, very exhausting. Uh, they, a lot of people don't travel that much. I mean, we traveled. I've got millions, honestly, millions of miles. And I understand exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that, uh, you know, we had significantly a lot more rigs, significantly higher number of rigs, um, you know, back overseas, back overseas in those days. Right. And, and we had to make every rig and make an audit. Yep. And, Annual you know, visit at least. Spending three or four days on each rig and trying to do that and made for a tight schedule. And, you know, you may end up being there a month and a half, two months trying to make every connection. Right. And if you miss a flight for weather or whatever it may be. That, Another uh, set of delays. Just pushed up. But, uh, you know, I remember being uh, in the North Sea and trying to, you know, make sure that the winds. Uh, I oh, remember there are only 50 mile an hour winds yeah. coming across the heliport. Just it's, walk uh, out there. I think it was 50 knots that uh, they wouldn't fly after 50 knots. And there are many days, oh, we're only at 45 today. I think you'll be good. Yeah, so right. We were able to get off the rig. and First time I went up there, I stepped out of the helicopter and realized why they had that net on the on the helideck. I never could figure that out until the wind about bowls you over. Oh, yeah. And you need something to hold on to. For sure. I remember going to the North Sea one time and going on one of our rigs, and uh, there was snow on the helideck. Very cold out there, not not a sight that you see very much, but uh, yeah, that was a... Uh, One of my jobs, I used to walk around with a sack of the de-icer, the little crystals, mm -hmm. it's like kitty litter, but sprinkle it on the paths to melt the ice to keep the, you know, pathways clear. Oh, yeah. You know, go back, going back to my refinery days up north, you know, when we was working in the uh, marathon refineries up there, you know, it, it would get cold and from all the steam tracers and everything running through the plant to keep the keep the lines from freezing. Of course, you get leaks and there are icicles hanging everywhere. Right. And I remember that was one of the big hazards. An icicle. When everything started thawing out was, I mean, you may have a 50-pound icicle up there that's going to fall. Chunk of ice, that's right. <clears throat> and we'd send crews out going around busting icicles. So, you know, those, uh, those things a lot of times you don't have to deal with whenever you're tropical environment oh no rig. not in the tropical and, but in uh, the in the cold weather did you ever experience four seasons in a day in scotland oh yeah in the north sea that's insane i, I remember coming off a rig there it was actually i remember the day because it was uh, guy folks day and uh, <laughs> november 5th and coming off the rig that day at 3 30 in the afternoon and it was already getting dark yeah it was cold and rainy and dark right 3 30 in the afternoon so I got off, it was probably in March. I was in the, in the shipyard up there. I was working nights. That night, it was snowing. Coming off the rig at seven o'clock in the morning, it started raining. When I woke up the next afternoon to go to work, it was about 70 degrees. And the next night, it was freezing again. I mean, it was just, it was insane. You know, it was like freezing 
snow, rain, wind is always up there almost. Four seasons in a day is okay. just a crazy experience. For sure. Did you ever make it far enough to see Aurora Borealis? I did not. You oh, know, that's I, uh, beautiful. I did not make it that far. Close to um, Norway, uh, just right off. I think we were about 100 miles off Norway. Yep. And that's the farthest north that I did make it. You should be able to see it from there if they have a good one. Yeah. But, but just uh, that's timing. It was the timing of the year and everything. I just wasn't able to. I do remember going there and being in a season where it uh, didn't really get uh, dark at night. Daylight, 24 hours. Yeah. Yep. It uh, That was the wildest thing. You know, we were up there and it uh, working in a shipyard. And at that time, we were staying in a house right off by the shipyard. And I remember at 2 o'clock in the morning waking up and it's still daylight outside. Absolutely. Never did really get totally dark. It looked like dusk yes. here. You know, and at four o'clock, it's bright daylight, just like it was at noon. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I've got pictures from Russia, the same thing. I took panoramic. Right. But this is back when you were using 35 millimeter film, right? But I'd just do a panoramic following the sun around 360 degrees. Yeah. And the sun, the only time it got hazy was when it went behind the Ural Mountains. But it didn't get dark. I mean, the sun just kind of dipped below it, barely. I think one of my most interesting trips by helicopter was when we went to uh, Australia. We happened to go out to the rigs whenever it was whale migration season. Oh. As we were flying Melbourne? Out. Were you down south? Well, no, we were up, up actually out of Perth. Oh, okay. And uh, actually went off the north, north shore. Oh, Darwin at the north or Perth? Or Perth? We went to Darwin. Okay, Darwin. North. Yes. There you go. I think I counted at that time going out to the rigs about 15 whales that wow. we saw from the helicopter. And then that trip, when we were out on the rig, I was out on the helideck one evening <laughs> walking, and I had one come up next to the rig and did the whale tail and, yep. and uh, it blew its fountain. Yep. It was pretty neat just to see. It's incredible. Um, yeah. I worked the same thing around Australia, and the craziest one, and I've mentioned this before, was out of Melbourne down in the Bass Strait. It was the dolphins. And you were talking about migration. This must have been some dolphin convention because it was just the sea was boiling with dolphins. Wow. It was incredible. I, you couldn't count them. Wow. It really was. It was. I've got I've got a video somewhere. If I can find it, I'm going to post it one day. Wow. You know, probably some of the most challenging times, though, was just really kind of navigating through the COVID oh, yes. crisis. And, we did uh, that directly we you did. and i we worked together and just trying to get people in and out of places and you know not that that was crazy but it was just kind of uh, hectic because it was challenging very challenging because there was nothing that was typical at that time everything was non-typical things you could count on people you could count on services you could count on no longer available you, just, you, you had to be totally out of the box and thinking. everybody had different sets of rules and different interpretations and yeah right not fun and you want to do you know you're trying to do what's right for for everyone and keep them the safest and utmost priority at that time is, right you know keeping everybody if you know somebody needs to get evacuated and, you know, there were protect a lot of, other people as well there were a lot of people that spent two and three times the normal amount on the rigs because they just no flights available right the the country would not allow those people off the rig and and i've got friends that were honestly stuck 
because the other countries were so scared to just let somebody off the rig into their country. Just mm -hmm. people moving became a no-go. Oh, yeah. Eventually, they obviously had to. It was difficult to, to navigate. Right. Those were difficult times. And then you have different issues, too, with different governments. And, yes. Uh, turmoil, when you have turmoil in different <laughs> lands. And, you know, those like are... Like a coup. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like a coup. When those things... I arrived on to, the 30th or 31st of January and got to my hotel room. And on the 1st of February, the military decided, ah, we're going to take the country back over. Right. I was... Got the T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> we worked through some of those together. Yes. And uh, those were challenging. You know, you, you find a way to get through, and we had a lot of good people working with us and a lot of management that really stepped up. and Absolutely. You know, did what they could to uh, And we know that. They, they were out. taking care of us. That was just a, a wild time that, you know, nobody knew. You, you didn't know just what was next. Right. Yeah. You know, one of the, you say other things, too, you, you I was thinking about times in Mexico and you know, working in Mexico was always a, uh, was always an adventure. And, I don't, uh, I don't have any, I don't have any passport stamps from Mexico. <laughs> I never made it. It was a, uh, it was an adventure there. It was, you know, at the time we had, uh, I think five or six different rigs working yep. in Mexico and we had a good, good group there. I had that territory for a while. You know, it was always interesting trying to get a, a chopper out mm -hmm. or chopper back because they had a lot of rain and weather there. We had a lot of good people in that office, too. I made, you know, made a lot of friends in that area, right. a lot of nationals that were there. And that's one of the things uh, I like exploring in this podcast is the, the camaraderie, the brotherhood, the, the close bonds that we form. In the oil field. Oh, yeah. Not not just on the rigs, but with the office, with international offices. I mean, we're communicating a lot of times daily. You become friends. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and the guys there, you know, when you go in the office, it was a, uh, you know, they wanted to show you, they wanted to welcome you to their country and show you all about their, their culture. And we're going to go eat somewhere. We're going to drink somewhere. We're oh, going to yeah. go hang out somewhere. You learn a lot, you know, yes. about their families, about what they do. And, you know, Mexico, it was it was amazing to me that, you know, they did everything late at night. And, you know, okay. They were a late night culture. You know, I know that, you know, soccer games, a lot of times they play till midnight or one o'clock in oh, the morning. Wow. And then, you know, come back in the office. And did you ever do morning, the Bulls? No, I never did the Bulls. I, I was watching a movie yesterday and I saw the Bulls and yeah. I just thought of it. Right. You know, I had a lot of good times there. You know, it's just different seeing. It's really satisfying to see people in other environments. And I think a lot of times we take things for granted in our country and until you travel and get to see different things. You just don't know, you know, how other people, how other people live. And it's just uh, interesting to see that. I've got a lot of friends now that I stay in contact with in Australia and the UK. That's right. And, uh, the same uh, way. I mean, the internet now, I mean, the, the ease of communication now, it's so easy to stay in touch with those people. Oh, yeah. You know, I was just uh, talking to some friends in Australia just a couple of days ago, and they were asking, are you a granddad yet? Hey, you know, how's, how are things going with the baby? That's and, right. You know, they follow. We're keeping up with each other's families. And, yes. And, uh, you know, it's just good to, good to be in touch. Well, I've got a friend out there I'm trying to get to start an Australia oil field talk. 
Oh, it'd be great. Yeah, yeah. I thought so too. And I think they'll do a great job. So For I'm sure. trying to talk them into it. Yeah. Had a lot of good times there. You know, met a lot of good people there and got to see a lot of country there. Did you see the crazy ants? Yes, I did. <laughs> I did. <laughs> the crazy ants. Uh, anybody that's been over there will know exactly what we're talking about. Oh, yeah. And it is indeed insane. Uh, you sit down and you just look at the ground, and the next thing you know, the ground is just moving. At first, I was trying to figure out what in the world, and the Australian next to me laughed, and he's like, it's the crazy ants, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's good. that Just a lot of good experiences that, uh, that I've had, and, you know, you – don't think about a lot of them until something like this. We sit down and start talking yeah. a little bit about about those. Hey, you miss it? Yeah, yeah, I do. You miss the camaraderie? Yeah, I do. It's a stressful environment. It is. It, um, you know, there's high demands. It is a uh, it's a high risk, high reward environment. But that's what makes the job interesting. You know, I had an interview last night with a man named Dan Morrison, and he brought up a good point, and that was people are not coming into the industry like they used to. For one thing, the price difference or the, the pay difference is not as much as it used to be. You used to go offshore, you were making premium money, but now land-based is, is comparable depending on how you want to look at it. And I was just wondering what are your thoughts on demands, manpower? Yeah, and, you know, from what I'm hearing, you know, I've been out of touch with the oil and gas for a little bit, but from what I'm hearing is that it's, from the people I've been talking to, it's hard to find people that are qualified. And then once you find people that are qualified, the ones that are willing <laughs> to go offshore. Right, and stay. And stay there yeah. because, uh, you know, it, it used to be attractive where the uh, the money made it worth the sacrifice to go. Yes, and I think you're right. You know, a lot of a lot of industry now is comparable to what could be offshore. Right. And uh, you know, a lot of people are valuing those times that they have with family. I think COVID has kind of made that a little bit true. Has changed the dynamics there because we're seeing more people actually working from home now than we've ever seen before. The companies and, are, uh, are allowing it. Some are encouraging it. And I think, you know, people see that and they're attracted It's an advantage. To Absolutely. Yeah, people same reasons their time you, with family. Same reasons you enjoy working, you know, out of your home. You have close access to your family. Exactly. And the flexibility, again, that wouldn't, who wouldn't be attracted to that? Sure, sure. Obviously, I would as well. Yeah. So for us leaving and going to work for 21 and 21 or 28 and 28, and they can find something at home. Who could blame them? Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's proving to be more challenging bringing people out, keeping people, retaining people. Uh, matter of fact, uh, another interview recently told me a story where a brand new roustabout came out on the first chopper and he left on the third chopper. I mean, he literally landed, decided, nope, this isn't for me, and was on the third chopper off the rig. So he didn't even make a full day. Yeah. I've seen that happen too firsthand. I haven't seen it firsthand. I've had them within the first few days, mm -hmm. but I've never seen it first chopper to third chopper. That's that's a pretty fast decision. Yeah. Yeah, I remember talking to a guy that I hadn't been out long, but I was in the Gulf of Mexico on one of our rigs. We had a guy come out, and I could tell that uh, he was uneasy. Had that look in his eye. 
he kept pacing back and forth. I was in the uh, safety rep's office, and he kept pacing back and forth in the hallway. And I finally just asked him, I said, what's going on? Right. I said, something wrong? He said, he said, I don't think I belong here. I said, what do you mean you don't belong here? I said, you're on the manifest to come out and you're right. here, right? right? He said, yeah. He said, I went through the training and he said, I'm here. But he said, uh, now that I'm here, he said, he said, I don't think this is for me. He said, uh, he said, my family was, he said, I come from a family of farmers. And he said, my dad encouraged me to go try something different. Mm -hmm. And he said, I can say I've tried it now, but he said, this isn't for me. I want to go home. <laughs> well, he's going to be a farmer. <laughs> so we put him on the next chopper and he went home. That's right. Because so, you know as ticket. well as I do that if their mind's not in it when they're offshore. Oh, you don't want just, them on board. You don't need them on board. It, the work stops. To themselves. Yep. Their mind is not paying attention. They're, they don't want to be there and we don't want them to get hurt. And I, I've matter of fact, I was teaching someone just recently we had something, the person basically said they wanted to go home, not in front of the person, but while teaching this person, I said, anytime somebody says that, it's a, that they're going next boat going, next airplane, next helicopter, whatever, they're going home. Yeah. Because once they've made that decision in their mind, we don't want them to work. No. Uh, once we told him we'd get him home, the look of relief came oh, over his face. That's right. <laughs> he was ready to go back to the farm. Yeah. Well, <laughs> like he said, he tried. Yeah. So were you always in management for offshore, or did you work on a rig? Were you assigned to a rig? No, I was always in management. Uh, when I was hired he in. You had the experience and the training. And I had the experience. You know, I was basically downstream, had been in industry for many years right. prior to I'd been a safety director for in a few different environments. And when I came in, uh, I was at a, in the supervisor position and I was a, a supervisor in the Gulf of Mexico. And at that time we had quite a big department mm -hmm. and we had, uh, we had, a, we had a manager and a few different supervisors. I think there were maybe three or four supervisors that we had. Right. There. I was in the supervisor role for, I think, two months, and then I, I bumped up to manager. Yeah, there's a reason. You're a very good manager. Well, I appreciate it. I, I really enjoyed what I did. You know, I took pride in uh, you know, working for a company that, that really was a, uh, you know, we were big then. We had uh, 43-something 40 rigs. Yeah. We had 43 rigs whenever I came on. Right. You know, then I went as manager into the uh, – Mexico position. The international stuff. And I, I was worried that, uh, you know, when I went into the Mexico and the, into that position, but I said, you know, what if uh, I said, I've got a language barrier. I don't speak yes, Spanish. Right. So I remember the, uh, the VP at that time, he said, all you got to do, he said, if they don't understand you, speak louder. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, no. <laughs> and he laughed. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm shaking my head because. I, I took a rig to Brazil with a uh, Gulf of Mexico crew. When we got to Brazil, I'd worked there before. and I had a little bit of Portuguese, but these Americans had never been overseas ever. Right. And we pull in and their crew gets out there and they did exactly what you said. <laughs> They're sitting there talking and they've got the glazed look and then they start raising their voice and 
the glazed look remains and the, the, the red cheeks. And I'm like, wait, stop. That's, that's not going to work. <laughs> well, I remember that comment that he gave me. And that, uh, uh, you know, we laughed about it and it was funny, but, it, but it, happens. but it stuck with me. It, it stuck with it's me. True. You know, every, yes. every country I went to, you know, you're always dealing with whether it's Portuguese speaking or, you know, you get, uh, Oh, the Far East, I couldn't learn. Yeah, the Far East. And, and I'm um, 14 years over there. I tell you, even some Cajun talk can be hard to understand sometimes. You're absolutely right. I've always remembered that you know our tendency is to speak louder whenever we're <laughs> in that situation. And I always remember that's not the answer. That's we, right. Uh, it's not going to work. We can find a way to communicate, and we did. We, we do. Always do. Absolutely. Yep. You'd be surprised. There's international hand language, sign language. We can point. Facial expressions, they work. Mm -hmm. You can communicate. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you think uh, all those signals are the same with helicopter, crane, um, you know, rigging. Just in conversation, in general conversation, you can just point at something and make hand gestures or whatever, and people may know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've been in many conversations where somebody's explaining a process to me out on the rig floor. We may not speak different languages, but we found a way to... Uh, Communicate yep. to find out what we're doing. and uh, That's just been... another challenge of the international world that a lot of Americans don't appreciate because they don't they don't ever leave the United States. Right. But once you get that global look, it really changes, at least it did for me, or your worldview. Yeah, and one other thing he told me, too. He said, well, he told me this joke. He said, uh, said you know what someone that can speak Three languages is more or more what you call them. You call them multilingual. Right. You can speak two languages. They call them bilingual. Right. He said, if you can speak one language, they call them American. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's usually the case. Yeah. Yeah. And there's uh, there's many dialects of American. Right. That there are. Uh, cannot cross communicate well. Right. South Louisiana is a prime example. That's for sure. <laughs> well, that's where my oil and gas career started as well. I'm currently working out of the Gulf of Mexico. So I totally understand. But I've lived down there so long, I can, I've can. i got the dialect or the ear. Oh, yeah. You definitely develop that over time for sure. What else you got, Brian? You know, I think about... Some of the things, you know, some of the research and with my degree I had there with my doctorate, I had a lot of research and, you know, background and the time we spent there um, working on some of the projects in the Gulf. We mm -hmm. uh, working with one of the major operators and looking at some of the human factors and right. trying to understand, you know, how people, how to keep people safe. You know, it's... It's a hard dynamic when you get into safety is managing the human, the human factor. You know, we, we did the mindfulness project and, you know, a lot of, a lot of that came through the pandemic too, or, you know, people were talking about looking out for self and, yes. and looking at self more. And, but I think that uh, part of that was, um, you know, really how to understand others better and how to uh, how to keep yourself in check better you know as people have points there there are a lot of pressures offshore there are it, you know it's a 
somebody that's never been gone from their family for 21, 28 days at a time, it, you know, that's, that's a sacrifice that person makes. So when they go out there, there are a lot of things that are missed. Is being a manager there and seeing the different people and dealing with them on a daily basis and checking in. You know, people have kids. They have uh, they have a wife. Or, you know, sometimes their uh, marriage has taken a toll Absolutely. because of yes. the offshore. And the family dynamics are not, you know, ideal in what they... Even though they're in. able to communicate better from nowadays with texting and, and email and all that kind of stuff, social media. It still takes a toll. It does. Yeah, you're right. You know, you get offshore and it, uh, you have your challenges communicating. Uh, you know, you're depending upon the rig internet to communicate. You know, that's that's hard to hard to do when you're out there and you know, and just time. You know, you can't. You, know, you don't have your cell phones with you all the time. Nope. You're working. You know, after you've worked a long day, you're tired and you know, taking the time to talk with your family and. There are a lot of factors. You miss a lot of things. There are birthdays you miss. There are holidays you miss. Yesterday we were talking with someone else about safety and what has prevented a lot of injuries. And what I've seen that's produced probably one of the safest things is one of the simplest things we created, and that was the push stick. That push stick, separation between the work and the person, the human, Right, you, you remove the human, put the distance between the human and the load, and guess what? They don't get hurt. We saved thousands of fingers and hands. I guarantee it. I, I, I saw it before, and I lived through it, and it was a hard sell at first. But you know what? Now, they're happy to use it. Oh, yeah. And nobody wants to touch that load. That, to me, I think is one of the biggest shifts uh, that saw almost instantaneous results within the first year, I guarantee you it dropped dramatically and it's just continued to drop. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one of the hardest things for somebody new going out into that environment. You know, natural tendency is to throw your hands up, throw your hands on something. You yes. see something falling, you want to catch it. Yes. You see something, you know, it's just your it's natural, natural tendency. That's right. It's hard to make that shift, that culture shift. You know, I've seen it. Distance. You know, the guys out there that uh, you know, distance stop is somebody the thing. and talk to them. And if you can, if you can teach them, and, and now we're using red zones and things like that, which you know is the same concept. You're removing the person out of the danger zone, but if you just create that distance, what's nice to see is that the new generation is being taught correctly. It's now becoming a habit that will get perpetuated. I know for a fact it's going to save a lot of people a lot of pain. Oh, yeah. Even in our brief time, we've seen advancements in technology. Yes. Uh, equipment, yep. design. Remote controls. We removed the person you know, away from the equipment, and they're, now they're using joysticks. Yeah. And so that what has, used to be hands-on is not. It was. It was a beautiful dance, but it was a dangerous one. Right. So, the, yeah, that's uh, there are a lot of dynamics out there that people don't see unless you've been out there. And, and people are dealing with dynamics of home and trying to manage that with the, the type of work environment that's there. Different world. It is for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm not going to take up a whole lot more of your time. 
I'm going to make a trip to Midland, Texas. All right. So before we leave, the name of your company in? It's Katie Tent Masters. Katie Tent Masters. Right. We do primarily commercial and residential window tinting okay. here in the greater Houston area. And we also do automotive tinting as well. Fantastic. Yeah. Hopefully some people in Katy will need some uh, tent. Exactly. What's All right. up? Thank you very much. Thanks, Trey. Good All seeing right. you. You too. Always a pleasure. Ciao. Nomad Mobile Productions is a broadcasting and media production company that produces podcasts and provides a mobile podcast studio complete with audio and video recording equipment. We also offer post-production processing, editing, marketing, and publication for podcasts. Our mobile production studio will come to you. Visit our webpage, nomadmobileproductions.com, or our Facebook, 